And in Psalm 48, the psalmist here talks about Zion, the city of God. So follow along with me as I read the 48th Psalm. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic, they took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Before we get into the passage too much, I don't know what you think about cities, but I'm not much of a city person myself. I don't have many desires. I see like New York City, I see big cities, and I never think, you know what, I wanna go there. That never crosses uh, my mind at all. Uh, maybe you're different. There is some cities I've been to that I've enjoyed. I, I remember going to Boston, I really enjoyed Boston, the history of it, it was pretty easy to get around, but just the thought of a big city stresses me out because I think about driving in it, and how much I'd hate that. I think about walking on the sidewalks with people all around me, or being in a subway, people touching me just sounds awful. I don't, want, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Or having to live, you know, all real close together. I, I don't know, I just kinda like space. And so, when we come to something like this, where the author is talking about Zion, the city of our God, I don't know. I start to think, do I, do I like the thought of this? city thing. But there are some great things about this city and we should be praising God, the king over the church, the king of the universe. And this is the way the psalmist does it. He talks about this city and he mentions Zion. And just so you know, Zion is one of those words in scripture that is very, very hard to figure out, very hard to define. Uh, but we'll, we'll try our best to do that uh, this morning. But in verse one, we notice something about this city. The psalmist says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. <clears throat> this city that he's writing about is God's city. And it's gotta be pointed out that it is God's city and no one else's city. Psalm 48 here describes some wonderful things about this city, but we do need to remember and cement ourselves and anchor ourselves in the fact that as we go through this psalm together, the reason that this place is wonderful is because God resides there. That's why it's wonderful. It's his city. The city is what it is because of God and because of him alone, not because of anything else. Nothing can be added to it. 
to make it better. Nothing can be taken from it, as we'll see as we go through this a little bit more. As you go around our wonderful city here in Monroe, I'm sure there are things that you could think of that you would say, you know, if we just had this, it'd be a better place. If we just had some Thai food. You know, in the office, we complain quite a bit about the restaurants that are on this side of town. How dare we have to drive over by Walmart to get food for lunch? That's ridiculous. They need to put some more over here, right? Or maybe you look around the city and you think, you know, if we would just get rid of this, this place would be a lot better place to live. Well, as we look at this city, this just isn't the case because it's God's city. It's perfect in every single way. And the author continues on in verse two where he says, beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the the city of the great king. The psalmist here talks about the beauty of this city that is the city of God. And now when we think about the word Zion, your mind might go to uh, Jerusalem, uh, Mount Zion. And I've been told many times by people who've been to Israel and to Jerusalem in particular about the beauty of it. Uh, They share that when they come back from a mission trip or when they come back from vacation or a tour or whatever it is uh, when they go over to Israel. I've had people tell me, oh, you have to just taste the vegetables there unbelievable compared to everywhere else. Or if I just had this fruit, and I mean nowhere else in the world did the fruit taste like it did when I tasted it from Israel. People come back with stories of the beauty of the, of the land over and over again and stories of how it just maybe even changed their life of what they've seen. Now listen, I have no doubt that Israel is beautiful, yet I don't think you could argue with me. Jerusalem probably is not the most beautiful place in the world, just by pure beauty. There's other places even in the Middle East that have beauty that would match Jerusalem. In fact, when we start talking about something like beauty, as the psalmist does here, beauty really is subjective. It's a subjective thing, right? You could tell me, look at this painting, it's beautiful. I'm gonna look at it and say, I don't even know what's going on there. I would never put that in my house. I don't even want to look at it anymore, but to you, it's just awesome to look at. Why? Because to you, it is beautiful, and I don't doubt that. But to me, maybe it's not, because beauty is something that can be pretty subjective. So when we look at this, why is this city declared to be so beautiful? Why is this city the one that is to be the most beautiful in elevation, right, in its heights, and its glory? Why is this the best place to be? Well, there's a simple answer to that. It's because God resides there. That's what makes this place so beautiful is the fact that God has established his throne in this place. Psalm 132 verse 13 says, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. I don't know why you live in Monroe. I live in Monroe because I was born here. I went away for a little bit to school, came back because there was a girl here I wanted to marry. That's what brought me back. And I've never left. I've never hated Monroe. I've never thought it was the best place in the world either. It's just where I am. I don't know your story. I do not know why you find yourself here. Maybe you chose it because of work. 
Maybe you're relocated here. Maybe you have a story like mine. You were born here, you just never saw a point to leave. You got a job, things were good. Have a family, whatever. But when it comes to this city, we have to understand that this is the city that God himself has chosen. He's chosen to live there. He's placed his residency there in this place that, the, that, this, ver, that this psalm calls Zion. God chose to rule it. God chooses to reign from it. And wherever God resides, wherever that's going to be, it will always then be declared the most beautiful place that there is. You can't find another place of beauty that matches it. Have you ever went on vacation and thought, you know what, I could live here. Have you ever thought that before? You go off on vacation and you think, I think I want to live here. Now there's a problem with that. You're just seeing the beauty of that place and the fact that number one, you probably didn't work when you were on vacation. So you are gonna work when you go there. That will have to change. You probably left a lot of your troubles uh, when you went on vacation. And so you got a week of like not even thinking about the problems of life. You just kind of vegged out on the beach or wherever it is that you go on vacation. And when you really start to think through moving to this new location, all of a sudden that stuff starts to creep in and the beauty of it oftentimes starts to fade away. And it's like, and at least for me, I know me and my wife had this conversation, we don't wanna move to where we wanna go on vacation. We wanna always see it as beautiful. Right, we wanna always see it as a nice place to go. If we move there, now it's gonna be the place of our problems, the place of our trials, right? The place of difficulties, where everything comes now and where we have to live and survive. Yep, with this place where God is, the city of God, he chooses it. And it is perfectly beautiful because he resides there. And so the psalmist says such there in verse two. As we move on to verses four and eight, and really most of the psalm is given to this next point here, we learn something about this city. We learn that it is a city of safety. And it's a city of safety, <clears throat> number one, because it is defended by God, it says in verses four through eight. It says, for behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. <clears throat> as soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight, trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. So look what's taking place in this psalm, what the, what the psalmist is picturing. The kings of the earth are assembling together. And why are they assembling together? They're assembling together because they want to overthrow the city of God. They want to push back against the city of God. And so this is not some small force that you should be thinking of. This is a mighty force trying to surround the city of God on all sides and on all fronts. But there's a problem. When all of a sudden they get to the point to where they can see the city of God, something happens to them. They start to tremble. They start to fear and they start to flee. Pain seems to overtake them and defeat starts to rule them. They realize that they have made a mistake, that this is not a city that they can take. And so they try to run away in fear, but they cannot run away. And they are completely destroyed. The ships of Tarshish, known as the, the strongest and mightiest navy of the time on the waters, just destroyed how by wind? Ships made to withstand the wind. Right? 
Ships made to use the wind, to be able to go and to move. And how does God destroy them? With wind, with an east wind, just demolishes them. And so all of these armies, all of these kings just brought to ruin. And all of this happens, why? Because they looked at the city. They just looked at it, thinking that they were gonna overtake it. It's so obvious that God is the king here and that all the other kings run in fear and they're conquered. Some say that this psalm was written from the destruction of Sennacherib. Uh, you might remember this. It's in 2 Kings, verses 18 through 19. Sennacherib comes and he takes all, everything from King Hezekiah. He, he takes over, he, he, he steals gold, he rips it from the temple. He does all of these things. And then he has the audacity to defy God when he's in the city. And in 2 Kings chapter 19, I wanna read it for you. 2 Kings 19, verses 10 through 13, it says, this is the king there talking. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezab, and the people of Eden, who were in uh, Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sephraim, the king of Hena, or the king of Iva? This is Sennacherib talking. Oh, King Hezekiah, you think God is gonna save you? No God has ever saved anybody from me. I'm going to destroy you. But what happens in the story? After he defies God, it's not Hezekiah who deals with it. I can tell you that right now. It's not the armies of Israel or of Judah that deal with the problem here. In 2 Kings 19, verse 35 through 37, we see who deals with it. It says, In that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his God, two men, Adremelech and Sherazar, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ariad. Israel didn't raise one finger. But who defended the city? God defended the city. This is something that the people in this city need to be reminded of. God cannot be defeated. I couldn't help but think of the second psalm as I was reading this. My mind went to the second psalm because the second psalm deals with this same thing. It says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings coming up against the city of God, they're plotting to come up against God. The psalmist in Psalm 2, David saying, why do the nations rage? Why do they plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. As the kings try to defeat God, it just simply cannot happen because God is defending the city and God cannot be defeated. But in verses 12 through 13, we see another reason why this city is so safe. It talks about the walls of the city. 
It talks about the bigness and the grandeur of the city. And look at verse 12 and 13. The people of the city are encouraged. It says, go, walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation. There's an encouragement to the people in the city of God. Go walk the perimeter. Go look at the walls. Go look at how safe you are. Go look at how you have nothing to worry about. Could you imagine our politicians doing that? <laughs> yeah, just come on in. Look, there's nothing to worry about. Everything is fine and dandy here. Things are going great. They can't do that. Why? Because it's not always going great. It's always something to hide. But in this city of God, it's so safe. The walls simply cannot be breached. And so the people are encouraged. Go ahead, go take a look. Go look at the walls of the city. Not one brick is broken. Not a single thing is out of place. Look at the grandeur of it all and how astonishing it really is. And what does it bring about for the people in this city? Well, it tells us it brings great peace to the people of God. They understand how safe they really are. They're safe here because God is defending them and because God has built this place that cannot be breached. This might seem like a silly point to say, but I, this is the next point. As we look at this city and the importance of it and characteristics of it, but it is filled with God's people. That's who live in this city. In the city of God are the people of God. It's not just any people. It's God's people. The safety, the protection of this city that only comes from this city that can come from being within this city is only for his people. What a privilege it is to be a part of this city. I'm sure that people would do anything to be a part of this city in Psalm 48. You're telling me that nobody can touch it? You're telling me that there's complete safety and protection there? That's a city that I wanna be a part of. That's a group that I want to be included in. You're also telling me that it's completely filled with beauty and protection? Yes, sign me up. I want to be a resident here. Now Israel in the Old Testament knew that they were chosen. I mean, Deuteronomy says this in Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse six, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. See, God had chosen Israel, and so the psalmist is writing this, thinking about Israel being a part of this city, the city of Zion, who's in complete protection and complete beauty. And it's because they were chosen to be a part of this promised city. And this leads to what? What does it lead to? Well, the people here see their God, they see the safety, they see the protection, they see the beauty, and it can only really lead to one thing, and we see it in verses nine through 11. It's then a city filled with the praise of God the people of God praising God for who he is and what he has done. And so the people of God continually praise God over and over and over again in this city forever because he's established the city forever. And why do they praise him? Well, they praise him for his protection. Nothing can stop him. Nothing can stop him and therefore nothing can stop them, his people. They praise him for his righteousness, we see in verses nine through 11. Your right hand is filled with righteousness, it says in verse 10. They have a God and they have a king that everything he does is perfect. Everything he does is perfectly just all the time. No one ever has to question God's work because it was done in perfectness at each moment and in each second. 
Think about that. A king with perfect motives. A king with perfect tactics. A king with perfect ways. A king that can always ensure perfect results. Always. And so they praise him for this righteousness. But then they also praise him for his judgments. Verse 11. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice. Why? Because of your judgments. The city praises God its king as the perfect judge. The one who sits on the throne and declares these judgments. Yet there's never an error in his verdict. Now you think about Israel and you think about the judges they had. And how often they must have seen error in judgment. Wrong judgment. Maybe you yourself have been on the side of a wrong judgment before. Something was cast on you from a boss, from a parent, from a friend, whatever it might have been. And you sat innocent, but yet were told you are guilty. And there was nothing you could do to get out of it. That's a tough place to be. Yet in the city of God, this never takes place. Because there's never once an error in any of his verdicts. Oh, the people had many judges in their time, but never a perfect one. And so now we praise God, it says in in Psalm 48. Why? Because the city of God has a perfect judge. It is God himself. As we look at verses 8 and 14, we see in this city that it is unstoppable. The psalmist points out in both of these instances the eternality of God's city, how it is eternal it says his city is established when? Forever and forever. It is a never-ending city. No one and no thing can ever remove the city of God, as we've talked about. It is perfectly safe, and it is a place of great refuge for the people of God. And it will be their place forever and ever. You see, I mentioned before, why do you live in Monroe? And some of you answer, I don't know. Some of you really are in a point in your life where you might move. You're not sure. You're kind of going back and forth with it, and you're, you're unwavering, and you know that there's difficulties that lie ahead if you move. You know that there's difficulties if you stay. You've, you've worked out the advantages. You've worked out the negatives. You've done all of that work, and you're just struggling as you kind of waver back and forth in your decision. Wouldn't it be great to be a part of a city where that doesn't happen anymore? You know you are where you are because that's exactly where you're meant to be. Because the king has called you to be there. The king has chosen you to be there and it's the one place in the world that everybody should be and needs to be. And that's where you are. That's what we see here in this. An unstoppable city that is a place of refuge for the people of God forever and forever. Now, as we look at this city, I don't know what you feel about it. I don't know what it does for you. We have many songs that we sing, many old hymns that talk about Zion. And often, I know for me, I told you before that Zion's a hard word to interpret. It really is. There's a lot of discussion about Zion and what it means because Scripture uses it as a place. Uh, Scripture uses it as a people as well. And so there's a lot of confusion of what are you talking about? Are you talking about the place or are you talking about the people? And oftentimes it happens interchangeably. It just goes in and out. People, place, people, place. You're like, what are are we talking about here? And we see this in Revelation. We see this in some other places. But I know for me, oftentimes when I thought about Zion, when we were singing songs here about Zion, I was thinking about heaven in my head. 
right? We're bar- marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. But it was a city that we were going to later. It wasn't necessarily a city that we were at now. But I want to encourage us this morning with this. As we read Psalm 48 and we see that this city of Zion and trying to understand what it means, the last thing that I want to point out to us is, is this. We, the church, today are the living Zion. And so this psalm for us here, Psalm 48, is a psalm that we can hold on to and declare that because of Jesus and what he has done, this psalm is speaking of us, our safety, our protection, the beauty of the church here. I want to try to prove that in this way. First of all, this, there is coming a day, don't get me wrong, when Jesus will establish his throne on this earth. And we pray for that day. And it will be a glorious day. We long for that day. We want that day to come. Revelation chapter 21, verse one through three, speaks of this. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Now see right here, you can even see the holy city Zion being used as a place, obviously, but also it says it comes what? As a bride adorned for the groom. So a people, even in this, we have a place and a people, but we can't deny that there is a place. There's a place that we look forward to, right? John's combining these, yet there is a city established and John would go on In Revelation 21, verse 9 through 27, it's a long passage. It'll be on the screen, but you can turn there too. I want to read it because the city is described. But listen to this city that is being promised for the people of God. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb, which was already talked about. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me what? The holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now you got the bride in the city again, right? Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations on them and were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a gate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, and the eleventh jacinth. 12th amethyst and the 12 gates were 12 pearls 
Each of the gates made of a single pearl and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, I read that with a purpose. Today, it's not my task to describe to you all the different stones, not to walk through all the different heights and all these different things and what maybe they could mean, which some do. But I think what happens a lot of times with this passage is we do take it a little too literal and we miss the big points. We, li- we miss the most important points of this passage You see, what's happening here, number one, is you need to notice the grandeur of this city. It's amazing. That's what needs to be known. It is an amazing city. It talks about the size of this city and the security of this city that we are to look forward to. It is a place with huge, high, thick walls that we can walk around and see that not a brick has been removed, that there's complete safety because of how this city was built. But there's an interesting thing that you notice in the passage that we read. You have the safety of this great city, but there's a problem. The gates are always open. Now that doesn't equal safety. The gates of this city are always open. Now how does that equal safety? Well, I'll tell you what it equals. It equals peace. There's no fear that anybody's ever gonna enter the city and have a problem with it. Because nobody's allowed in who has sin. That's what it says there at the end. You have to be clean to enter the city. And so there's no fear that somebody's gonna enter these gates who shouldn't be a part of the city. And so within this city that we are promised, that is being promised here in Revelation, is a city of complete safety, of complete rest and of complete peace. And this is something, yes, that we look forward to as the church today because we know this has been promised to us, those who have been grafted in to Israel. But we also know that it hasn't come about just yet, has it? We don't feel that safety. We don't feel that peace. We don't see the walls that we can go and walk around or the bricks that we can touch or the gold that we can walk on. We haven't experienced that and we long for that day. We long for the day of Jesus' return when we will get to dine with him, it says in scripture. We will get to eat and drink with him in his holy city where he is king, where there no longer is a tear to be shed, but complete joy and satisfaction and peace forever. But again, the encouragement in that is this. Yes, we wait. We must wait, but know this, that the church currently is the city of God. The church is the place that has been given the promises and the truths of this psalm. And you might push back and say, Pastor Tim, I don't know where you are getting that. I'll tell you where I'm getting that. There's two places. One of them was already read this morning in Hebrews chapter 12. I don't know if you paid much attention, but I'm not going to read it again. 
but in Hebrews chapter 12, you can go and read it. But there's another place in Galatians chapter four, verse 21 to 31. You remember Galatians. I've preached through it already. Paul is battling the Jews who want to force all these commands on the Gentiles who are being saved to say, if you really wanna be a part of us, you must follow the law of Moses. And Paul is saying, absolutely not. That is not what needs to happen. You're messed up here in this, in this theology. It needs to be corrected. And part of that argument is in Galatians chapter four, verse 21 to 31, where Paul says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, so the Jewish people, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. Notice this. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, Zion, the city of Zion on this earth, Jerusalem. But, but Paul is saying Jerusalem is correspondent to Hagar, right? For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, he's talking to Gentiles here, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. What's happening here? Paul is saying you, you who've been saved by the grace of God, you are children of the promise. So that is us, the church. We are children of the promise. We, when we read Psalm 48 and we think, that's a city I want to be a part of. Being saved by the grace of God makes you a part of the city of God. And so the same promises that the city of God has, we now have today as the church. Why? Because God has chosen the church to be his chosen residence. Ephesians 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of what? Of the household of God, he says built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into what? A holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together in dwelling place for what? For God. What was the main point of Psalm 48 that I say at the beginning? What makes it such a special place? God resides there. Where does the Bible tell us that God resides now? According to what we just read. With the church. With you. With me. He's promised to reside with us. We have been made into the temple. 
because of the work of Christ, because the curtain has been torn in two, God now resides with us. We have the Holy Spirit living with us. And so therefore, we have the same promises. The church is beautiful. As much as you might get frustrated with it, me too. But the church is beautiful. You say, I don't know, it seems to be corrupt. Well, according to Ephesians 5, verse 25 to 27, which we often focused on husbands and wives, it tells us that the church is beautiful. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself. How? In splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Listen, you guys might not be the best looking people, You might have sin in your life that needs to be dealt with. And you do, and I do too. But by the grace of God, listen, he is presenting you to himself without spot, without wrinkle, without stain. And you are perfectly beautiful in the eyes of God, not because of you, but because of the work of Christ in washing you clean and making you beautiful. And so we long, yes, for this city of beauty that we can see with our eyes. But listen, brothers and sisters, we live today in a city where God resides and he calls it beautiful and it's called the church. But also the church is safe. Matthew chapter 16, verse 17 and 18, Jesus talking to Peter. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. But then what does he say about this church? The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. (laughs) We see the story of that beautiful city. The kings go, they're trying to defeat the city. They just look at the city and what happens? They tremble in fear, their ships are tossed about, and they are no more. Guys, nothing in this world and nothing in hell can ever stop the church of Jesus Christ. Nothing. Oh, one day Monroe Missionary Baptist Church might have to close its doors. Don't get me wrong. But the church, the big C church, can never, ever be stopped. It will never be stopped. Why? Because God has promised that it will never stop until the coming of our Lord. And then we will be with him forever in that city where he reigns as king And so we don't need to sit here shaking in our boots and being worried. No, because the church is completely safe. And the church is filled, just like the city, with the people of God, chosen by God. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The church is filled with the people of God, whom God has loved, whom God has called, whom God has sanctified, whom God has cleansed. One of the saddest things as a Christian, maybe you this morning, you think so little of yourself. You just think yourself to be worthless. That's what's in your mind. You think there's no way that God could love you. There's no way that God could care about you. It's a sad place to be because the Bible tells us something drastically different. 
God loves you so much that in the midst of your ugliness and in the midst of your sin, he would send his son to die in your place so that you could be a part of his city, so that you could have his protection, so that you could experience his love and his grace forever. Maybe you've been saved for a very long time and you seem to forget that. I hope that you'll be reminded of that today, of how much God has loved you and cared for you. Because as we understand these things about God, what the church then should be is similar to what we said in Psalm 48. The church should be filled with God's praise. Psalm 48.1 starts, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Where? In the city of our God. A New Testament way to read that would be great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Where? In the church amongst his people, where he resides. What differentiates us from the rest of this world? Like I said, Jerusalem has its beauty, yes, but there's other places, I'm gonna be honest with you, are much more prettier than Jerusalem. What differentiates us, the church, from the rest of the world? Other people do good, we see it happen, right? Other people do kind things, what makes us different? What makes the church more beautiful than any other charity or any other social club or anybody else that's doing good? What differentiates us from the rest of the world is God's grace in our life and the fact that God has chosen to reside within the church. That's what makes us different. That's what separates us. That's what then leads to our life of praise to him day in and day out. See, as you read Psalm 48, and I'm guessing that as I was going through it at the very beginning, you were thinking, I long for that day to see Zion. We do. We sing those songs and we do. I, we can't wait for that day. But don't waste what God has given us now in the church just sitting and stargazing, waiting for the day. We have those promises on us now. Nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. You have complete safety. You are beautiful, right? We have the privilege to share the gospel to a world and to invite them into this city. Say, this, is, this can be your city. If you would trust and believe in Jesus and what he has done, this can be your city. We have that great privilege. And for many of us in here, we have it stamped eternally on us that we are citizens of Zion forever. It's because of the work of God in our life. I'm gonna ask if you would, bow your head and close your eyes. We wanna respond to the word of God like we do each week. We usually end with a song and we will again but it's also a time for you to respond to his word from what you heard, however that may be. I don't know how God has used this in your life. I know it was a good reminder for me to see the work that he's doing in the church because honestly, sometimes you can just get kind of negative, not, not about Monroe Missionary Baptist Church, but just church in general, big C church wondering what is happening or seeming like everything is coming up against it. All the forces of darkness, 
All the forces of this world seem to be pushing against the church and wanting nothing to do with it, to run in the opposite direction, and it can seem like it's all gonna fall apart, but it was good to, it's good to be reminded. Nothing, nothing can stop the church because it is the place where God resides and it is the blood of Jesus that seals it. So I hope if you get nothing, you'll at least take that away this morning. God, thankful that you are king. Forgive us for not praising you like we should. God, I pray that it would be ever on our lips as individuals to give you credit so often that people would be hearing it from us, from our voice as we say, I am who I am because of God and his love in my life. That we would not be afraid to share the blessings in our life and to give again credit to God for those blessings. God, help us to praise you. Help us to hold on to your promises. Help us to see your safety and your security. Yes, we're gonna face trials on this earth. Yes, we are going to face suffering. Yes, there's going to be a lot of difficulty. But God, nothing, nothing can erase my name from the Lamb's Book of Life. No king, no dictator, no politician, no army, no bully, nothing can ever stop that. And so God, I pray that as a church family, we would rest on your love, that we would find our acceptance in you, in your acceptance, knowing that we are a part of the city of God that cannot be shaken, that when the foes look upon it in the end, they turn away and tremble and are destroyed. And yet we reside safely there. God, help us take great encouragement from that this morning. God, revive the hearts of your people. God, break the hearts of those here this morning who have never trusted in Jesus as their Savior. Break their hearts so that they see that they need Jesus and that they would fall on their face before you, trusting in you with their life, forgiveness of their sin forever. God, work in our hearts as we respond to your word now, we ask in Jesus' name.